The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon, and happy primary election day today. Polls close at 7 p.m. Hi, Liz. And those local elections are really important, and uh, you know, people need to participate. Uh, we can't, can't complain unless we participate. And good morning. I, I hope you had an enjoyable weekend and your week is off to a good start. And, you know, what I love about doing uh, our broadcast where we incorporate Zoom is we can bring in experts from around the country. And today we're excited to welcome Professor Alexander Natapov of Harvard Law School and Professor Cliff Johnson of, the, of our own University of Mississippi School of Law and our MacArthur Justice Clinic uh, to, to talk about the over-enforcement uh, and over-criminalization uh, and over-punishment of misdemeanor crime. So good morning, Professor Nat- Professors Natapov and Johnson. Uh, would you please tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you became interested in how misdemeanor crimes are treated in our legal system? Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I've been writing about misdemeanors. Misdemeanors sometimes write them off as petty and small and unimportant. It's 80% of American criminal dockets. This is mostly what our criminal system does. I've been writing about them now as a scholar uh, for, you know, over a decade before I was a law professor, however, I was a uh, community-based lawyer and then an assistant public defender in Baltimore. And it was um, wildly clear how central misdemeanors were to everyone's life, to the quality of life in the neighborhood, to people's expectations of the way they would be treated by the criminal system, to the way the criminal system eventually treated people who had been through the misdemeanor process. And I learned in many ways firsthand just how central misdemeanors are to, um, uh, to, to communities, to families, to the way we run our cities, uh, far beyond the credit that they are given in our criminal system. So I, I think they're an underappreciated engine um, of, uh, of really the way we govern. Yeah, and, you know, Richard, for me, it's good to be with you both, and I'm really excited to have Alexandra join us. I've sought her counsel on some issues around misdemeanor enforcement. I've been practicing law in Mississippi for 30 years. I I leave tomorrow for my 30th law school reunion. It's hard to believe. And I've been practicing law here that entire time. I came back here in 1992. And of course, just as by virtue of living in the state, right, I've been exposed to what we call traffic court, local city courts, where we go when we get a speeding ticket or another misdemeanor ticket. And as a civil rights lawyer here at the MacArthur Justice Center, um, we quickly recognize the same thing that, you know, Alexandra did, which is that this really impacts people's lives much more than the felony criminal system. I mean, as as a percentage, it's a much lower number of people, thank goodness, that are embroiled in that system. And what we saw was... Um, despite the fact that people think of it as small-time stuff, 
that the amount of fines imposed, the way the system works, just the process of having to go to court and wait for hours to see a judge and take time off work and the threats made against you and um, things that we'll talk about during this hour, you know, the, the people were really being hurt and, and controlled in a way that was um, bad policy and illegal. And, and we litigated some cases, Richard, you're aware of that, you know, where we sued city of Jackson and Moss Point and Corinth, and we entered into settlements with other cities that we'll talk about where people were getting locked up, right? Just because they couldn't pay their misdemeanor fines and fees. So we've spent a lot of time over the last eight years focused on misdemeanor enforcement. It's, it's become an interesting intersection for me of kind of policy around poverty um, transfer of wealth, you know, you're a tax professor, you understand how regressive some of this stuff is. Um, I, mean, I think it's an important issue, particularly in this, the poorest state in America, right? And so I'm interested, I'm excited to talk about it and um, appreciate you giving us a forum to do that. Well, we're so glad to have both of you. And uh, and so let's let's start with the basics first. I mean, what exactly are misdemeanors. We often think of misdemeanors as petty crimes, especially when we think about, you know, in relation to felony, we hear that term felony, and that sounds really serious. But what exactly are misdemeanors? So, uh, so first, I'll give you the legal answer first, and then I'll give you the real answer. So the, the legal answer is typically we define a misdemeanor uh, in most jurisdictions as a uh, criminal offense for which a person can serve no more than one year. Uh, which, as I mentioned before, is almost everything, actually. Eighty <laughs> percent of the uh, the offenses that are filed in this country are misdemeanors. Um, even the legal definition is misleading because we have there are jurisdictions that have three-year misdemeanors or four-year misdemeanors. In other words, you could be incarcerated for up to four years for a thing that we label a misdemeanor. And conversely, there are uh, misdemeanor offenses that have a cap at six months or a week incarceration, or, an, or a huge world of what we sometimes call fine-only misdemeanors or non-jailable misdemeanors. They carry, uh, they carry only a fine and not incarceration. And in light of what Cliff just said, I want to put uh, scare quotes around the word only a fine because people are routinely incarcerated for failure to pay those fines. So it is not a promise of, of liberty and, and, and a lack of incarceration, but, but we sometimes think of those as more lenient. So that's, that's the legal answer. And the legal answer reveals you know, what, what an enormous spread of um, uh, conduct we regulate through the misdemeanor system, everything uh, from what we might think of as more serious misdemeanors that, that uh, I want to say look more like crimes. So domestic violence, DUI, things that we might think of as somewhat harmful or dangerous or risky or, or something that we might um, associate with the notion of criminality. And then much more often at the other end, uh, 26 states define speeding as a criminal misdemeanor. In other words, the misdemeanor system is full of stuff that we don't even think of as criminal even though we're handling it that way. And so, so the legal... Uh, and technical answer gives us a, a sense of the world, but I want to suggest that the real way, the best way, the most insightful way, I think, to understand misdemeanors is as an enormous grant of power that we have given to the state. 
to interfere with our liberty and our privacy through the criminal system based on the most minor of conduct, harmless, victimless, off chump change that we don't even associate with criminality. And what we have done is we have authorized the state through its agents, through police and prosecutors and jails to treat us like criminals, to strip people of their wealth, to redistribute wealth based on, on this kind of conduct, uh, based on conduct that most people would deem to be relatively minor. It's an enormous transfer of power to uh, the penal apparatus, and that is why the misdemeanor system is so important. And Richard, you know, I, I, would, I would add to that you know, just quickly is that it, it's, it's a transfer of power, but, but it's also a transfer of a hell of a lot of money. Right. So these cities become dependent, have become dependent over decades on this machinery to take money out of the pockets of local residents and fund city services, city services, you know, of course, which we want. They they plant flowers on the square and they provide, you know, various city services. But but where that money comes from. Right. And, and what is so sinister about this, not to be overly dramatic, but it's probably it, we saw it in. Ferguson, for example, um, in an investigation following Ferguson, is that cities rely on the enforcement of misdemeanors and the collection of misdemeanor fines and fees to fund their operations, such that what we've seen in Mississippi is mayors and city clerks will call judges and say, hey, Judge Gersh, you need to pick it up. You're down 15000 from this time last year. You know, cities got to eat. And there's economic um, pressure to keep this churn going. We are so glad that you're listening with us today. We are talking about punishing misdemeanors. You can send us your questions by email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our guests are Professor Alexandra Natapoff professor from Harvard Law School, and Professor Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And if that last name sounds familiar, we're going to tell you why in just a bit. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. It's primary election day today. We want to remind you that polls stay open till 7 p.m., 
But we are uh, talking today about how misdemeanors are punished. We've been pleased that one of our guests, Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law, he's participated on in legal terms a few times in the past. On October 13th of 2020, he helped us understand the Flowers v. Mississippi ruling. On June 16th of 2020, he discussed what defunding the police could mean. And on April 10th of 2018, he shared what the Mississippi Center for Justice does. This morning, we're also pleased to have Alexandra Natapov, professor of law at Harvard Law School, help us learn more about how misdemeanors are punished. Both these guests today. And Professor Natapov, you've written a book called Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent, and makes America more unequal. Would you please talk a little bit about that impact of the misdemeanor system and, and, and why you wrote that book? Thank you. So I wrote the book because we don't pay attention to misdemeanors enough. Uh, we don't have enough data. We don't pay enough attention to the impact on communities and families and individuals. We don't, un- we don't pay enough attention to how much of the criminal system is comprised of misdemeanors. And so I, I wrote the book to try to elevate the issue to try to share the information that is available on the public record. And again, we don't have enough uh, information on the public record yet um, we, we, because we don't pay enough attention. So the, the book is really an invitation to think more profoundly about the role that these low-level offenses and the, and the way the criminal system, system handles them, the, the role that it plays in our society and our governance. Um, I'll di- uh, when I wrote the book, uh, starting back in, in, in 2016, and I had been writing about misdemeanors for a number of years, but, but I realized that in order to write a book about misdemeanors, it would be good to know how many there were. Uh, and it turned out that nobody knew the answer to that question because we don't pay attention. Uh, so I sent a records request to every state in the United States asking the court system for data on their, um, on their misdemeanor dockets, and I, and I think your listeners might be surprised to know that many states don't even know uh, how many misdemeanors are filed uh, in their state. They don't keep very good track. They have some general numbers. Um, but the data in the book um, shares the, the information that I was able to collect. Um, and now, uh, since then, more researchers have sort of joined the fray and tried to unearth unearth that information so we do know a little bit more than we used to know. But I, I think it would be surprising to most people to realize that in the modern American criminal system, uh, we don't really keep very good track of what happens to people. Uh, I'll just mention... Well, let me, let can me, I jump in, Alexander, to this? Please, go right ahead. Just as Mississippians, we ain't used to being in the top five of much. Um, <laughs> but dadgummit, we're in the top five here. We... According to Professor Natapoff's research, Mississippi enter, um, issues the fourth most misdemeanor charges of any state in the country. So we're all about it in Mississippi. Sadly enough, again, this is the poorest state in the country. Just wanted to jump in and share that because we're we follow those lists. They're usually painful to follow, and this one is as well. Uh, it, it really reflects, Cliff, what you were saying earlier, which is just the centrality of the impact of using this form of governance in communities, that when we overuse it, it exacerbates poverty, it, it exacerbates racial disparities. Um, it, it, it really is uh, a governance challenge that we haven't paid enough attention to. Uh, 
one of the things I, I concluded from writing the book and, and, and I hope is helpful for people who are interested in thinking about our criminal system is just what it, what does it mean that we run 80% of our criminal system in the, in, in this kind of sloppy under the table, um, regressive way. And the heart of the book are the, 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 the three chapters in the middle of the book that really engage these questions are called innocence, money, and race. And it's a way of saying uh, that the way we run our misdemeanor system generates wrongful convictions because we're so sloppy about it. Um, the way we run our misdemeanor system is actually a regressive taxation mechanism, as we've been talking about already this morning, uh, because essentially we're stripping low-income and working people of their wealth and resources to fund the system itself. And then uh, the and the misdemeanor system, finally, is also an engine of racial inequality. It reaches out and touches Black people and other people of color more often, more aggressively, and as we know, more violently than it does other people. Uh, it sweeps people of color and black people into the criminal system more often. It creates, it, it, in many ways, it's the first step of the racialization of crime, the misdemeanor system, and we don't pay enough attention to how that works. And so uh, my hope is that the book will help people understand the significance and many of the dysfunctions of the way we run, essentially, the vast majority of our criminal system. And, and, and one thing I'll say about that too, Richard, is this notion of the racial disparity before people recoil too much and say that, you know, Alexander is saying that police officers are racist. That's a separate conversation. And I don't think that's what this has to be about, right? The question is like, where do police cars sit during the day and at night? Who gets stopped more often, right? We, we've done all this, these conversations around, you know, for example, prosecution of drug crimes. White folks and black folks use drugs at the same rate, but black folks get prosecuted 10 times as much. And a lot of it's just a function of how we police. So, so this happens, um, overt racism aside, this happens just as a function of how we've set up policing and who gets stopped and which communities are over-policed. And then, you know, and then who has the ability to not be issued a ticket or get out of a ticket or, you know, all the things that we know happen in small towns around Mississippi. So it, it's, it's definitely true and it doesn't require um, you know, this overtly racist police force in order for it to play out that way. In fact, we have heard from police officers around the country complain that there's pressure on them to make arrests so that they can get promoted, so that when they are assigned to communities of color, it is guaranteed that they will have to over-arrest people for their job in ways that increase racial disparities in the criminal system. We've seen lawsuits by police officers against their own departments, complaining that they're put in an untenable position because the, of the way that the misdemeanor system, as Cliff points out, is, is arranged. It's, it's an institutional problem as deeply as it is um, an individual problem. And of course, always back to this problem of money, which is the pressure. Uh, Cliff already mentioned the, the, um, the 2015 Ferguson report, but we learned as a nation that the pressure on police departments from cities and from courts to raise money by issuing tickets and, um, and engaging in arrests 
uh, is part of the engine that generates racial disparity itself. So, so we are hearing voices now speaking out throughout the criminal system, from, you know, from the rank and file all the way up through prosecutors um, and legislators to, to rethink how we structure this enormously powerful machine. Well, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's so important to hear because what's going on in Jackson seems to be something a little bit different. They're saying that maybe we need to go after misdemeanors more to try to stop violent crime. Is that, does that play out in your, your opinion? Or? Well, you know, Richard, I've re- written an op-ed about this, this uh, push in the city of Jackson to respond to what uh, has been quantified as an increase in gun violence in Jackson by ramping up the use of roadblocks, a practice that we are in active litigation around uh, against the city of Jackson, by constructing a a misdemeanor jail, opening a new jail in Hines County, where they've just lived in litigation for years over their inability to run a jail, and, and to respond to gun violence through aggressive, more aggressive misdemeanor enforcement. And Chief Davis continues to take the position that it because we don't prosecute misdemeanors more harshly, then, then that leads to this increase in gun violence. And, and let me be clear, there is no data, no study that supports any correlation between increased misdemeanor enforcement and decrease in violent crime. In fact, the largest study conducted ever by the University of Chicago recently, a meta study of 106 other studies, shows that you make it, that it becomes more likely that people will commit crimes when you destabilize a community through aggressive misdemeanor enforcement. You, you even arresting people for three or four days, right, places extreme uh, burdens on their ability to keep their job, keep their housing, maintain whatever stability they have. And for a lot of us, you know, we live on that edge month to month and week to week, and you destabilize communities through this aggressive enforcement. So we're really troubled by this narrative that somehow, you know, if you take care of the little stuff, then that prevents the big stuff. These are different people, different conduct, different behaviors, and no study that supports this um, narrative that's being thrown around pretty loosely in Jackson by members of the city council um, and by Chief Davis. And, and, you know, we have an agreement with them from previous litigation. We sued them over their pay or stay practices that says they can't lock people up for misdemeanors. And if they do what I'm afraid they're going to do, then we're going to have a problem. In the court, we're going to have a problem. Does it sound like a good idea to you, Alexander? Am I missing it? There's, there's so many important things packed into, into that dynamic. Um, let, let, me pick, let me just pick two of them. You're absolutely right that it's a mythology that rounding people up for this chump change uh, is going to reduce violent crime and um, make our communities safer. In fact, there's substantial evidence that it makes our communities less safe because of the burden on individuals and their families. We're essentially kicking them out of the economy by imposing arrest and incarceration. We're, de- we're, we're, we're debilitating their, their power to live productive and fruitful lives, to get education, to get housing. So, so we know it's extraordinarily costly in ways that have implications 
for public safety. Uh, we have uh, you've been you've litigated this here in Mississippi. Of course, it's been famously litigated around the country. New York has been you know in the was in the throes of litigation for years over its stop and frisk practices, and it was it was a heavily studied uh, proposition. This idea that if you over-enforce misdemeanors, that it'll reduce violent crime. And after years of study, it's, it's become clear in the academy that that, um, that, that, that that is a misstatement. It's a mythology about how low-level misdemeanor um, enforcement works. And I, and I just want to bring us back to first principles for a second. Remember what we're talking about in misdemeanors. We're locking people up for loitering for trespassing, for standing in the wrong spot. We're locking them up for being disrespectful on the street at two in the morning. I, I, I worked in Baltimore. Loitering was the um, sort of the offensive choice for Baltimore City police officers. They would round people up who didn't move from the street corner fast enough, um, you know, on a weekend night. It turns out that that's not actually loitering. It's not actually a crime. So, so we're, we're derailing people's lives based on the most minor of conduct. So when you say these are different people, these are different crimes, they're also different moral questions. No one's arguing that we should go easy on murderers or rapists. To lump all these questions under the banner of crime, I think is misleading. I think we have thought about this low-level conduct as criminal for too long. The costs are too high. The benefits are too small and unproven. And so uh, the opportunity to rethink this question, um, you know, we're just coming out of a moment of terrible instability for the country. The pandemic has destabilized so many lives, so many of our institutions. And, and I, I, I don't want to sound too hopeful, but it is a moment to rethink, you know, to, to not build the new jail, to, to not create worse, high, worse, more severe penalties and fines for low-level conduct, to look back on what we've learned over the past decade and take this opportunity of instability and rethinking to do it better. There's evidence, there's research, there's scholarship. We've been thinking about these questions for years. We, we can do it better, and it's tough. It's tough when people are feeling vulnerable and afraid it's to take nothing away from that. But, but I think we have tools at our disposal and, and, and sometimes this can be a, you know, depressing and negative conversation. I just want to inject that, you know, and different jurisdictions are experimenting with different and more positive and more, um, you know, humane alternatives. So I, I, I don't want to suggest that the only way, the only direction is downhill. Um, there are also opportunities here to do this better. Email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with Professor Alexandra Natapov, professor of law from Harvard Law School, and Professor Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law, about punishing misdemeanors. Now, if it sounds like our guest, Professor Natapov, knows what she's talking about, she does, and we'll tell you how you can access her information next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or find the MPB Think Radio recordings at mpbonline.org slash radio. Today, we're talking about punishing misdemeanors with our guests, Professor Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Center for Just, Justice Center and at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Professor Alexandra Natapov, professor of law at Harvard Law School. And her book that we've talked about a little bit is Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. And it's available for you to read or purchase. We do have a call. This is from Madison. It is Fletch. Fletch, we're glad that you've called in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? So I apologize if this is uh, redundant or um, already been answered. I just tuned in just a few minutes ago. Um, I didn't realize that punishing the misdemeanors or big efforts to round them up was a phenomenon, was a target, a goal, and, and that, you know, like you said, the Baltimore Police Force did what they did. Um, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying as far as it may be disrupting family members and things like that. It's not the answer, but I got two questions. What is the answer to maybe, uh, repeat offenders of misdemeanors only, um, and, or what is the answer for, uh, repeat felons as far as, uh, punishment and recidivism? Uh, thank you so much for the for the question, um, I guess I, I'd like to invite you to think about what you mean by repeat offender. So I, I think in the misdemeanor world, we borrow a lot of terms unthinkingly from the world of felonies and serious crimes. So if you're talking about homicide, for example, and we say repeat offender, what you mean is somebody who is repeatedly victimizing other people and uh, and has not been deterred. In the misdemeanor system, it means something different. It is just right. as likely, if not more, that what we mean by repeat offender in, in the misdemeanor world is somebody who is repeatedly arrested in their community, in their neighborhood, in their public housing project uh, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time because uh, police are exerting their authority, uh, demonstrating their authority. In other words, the fact that people have repeated contact with the misdemeanor system does not mean that they're culpable or dangerous or harmful in the same way. The other enormous reason that people are, I'm going to put scare quotes around repeat, quote unquote, repeat offenders is because they're poor. They get a, chi a ticket. They can't pay the ticket. They go to jail because they can't pay the ticket. They get released. Now they're being fined for having to stay in the jail for court costs, for other fees and supervision fees. Now they're released. Now they can't pay all those fines and fees either. They get arrested again. Now they're in jail again. They're repeat offenders because they the criminal system is imposing economic burdens on them. They can't pay. So I would, it's such an important question. It opens up this enormous problem of of why people cannot escape the burdens of the misdemeanor system. They lose their driver's license. They get tickets for driving without a license. They no longer can afford insurance. So they get a $750 ticket for driving without insurance and no license, which puts them deeper in the hole. So, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it just, it, 
it com it compounds. You know, when you talk about conduct that is repeated, obviously, to Professor Nadapov's point, you have to look at the seriousness of it when you start talking about what's the answer, right? So I think, you know, the, the, what I would say that we've encouraged in both the misdemeanor and felony context is you don't start at level 10, right? I mean, this notion of graduated sanctions, apart from the issue of who gets embroiled in the system and why, to the extent that you're in the system, you start talking about, man, what do we do when people won't act right? Right. Like we keep we see them repeatedly in a way that we don't like and they wind up in court. Um, we have to address the question of why they're there. And we've talked about that. Once we get there, what what we see is courts not fashioning the punishment in an individualized way. So everyone, for example, gets the same fine for the same conduct. And someone, um, uh, Fletch, who's who's on social security disability, right? $762 a month. We'll, we'll get a $500 fine, the same $500 fine for an offense that someone making $150,000 a year will receive. And then that person can't make it, can't pay it, has to get on a payment plan perhaps. There's a private company out there that makes 55 extra dollars a month to collect your payment plan and we put a price tag on that and we start getting into this kind of cycle of non-compliance um not really new behavior right um uh but uh, uh an ability to comply with the demands of the system as it exists so that part's really you know frustrating in kind of you know dante's you know levels of hell trying to you know climb out of there on the felony side, of course, I mean, it's a different conversation. It's one that I'm really interested in, and it's one where, you know, we've seen habitual offender laws locking people up for 30 years or 60 years for a drug crime that happened within 15 years of a more serious crime. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of studies about the wrongheadedness of that. I would just say, you know, we've got to think about thoughtful, careful, graduated sanctions that... Um, fit the crime and that are individualized um, rather than this one size fits all conk them on the head because we're, we're angry that people don't do what we think they ought to do. I mean, we've got to think about what's good policy, what's good for our communities, what actually promotes public safety. And that's, a, that's a long conversation, but a good question. Fletch, we're glad that you called in with your question. If you have a question and would like to participate in our conversation on punishing misdemeanors, our phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You know, this is Mississippi, and we do have a less majority-minority race picture. Is race a factor in misdemeanor enforcement? You, you, we can't really understand the misdemeanor system without understanding the role of race, the historical role of racism in the misdemeanor system. And then as we've been talking about all morning, the structural habits of the misdemeanor system that disproportionately sweep up black people and people of color uh, because of the way we structure policing and the way we structure punishment. Uh, 
let me let me say one word about history. There's a, there's a chapter in the book that's called History, and it goes all the way back to the end of the Civil War. And I, I, I think it's, it's often surprising to people to realize that after the Civil War, after emancipation, many of the, uh, the economic institutions, the plantations, the, fine, the, um, the mines, and the factories in the South uh, put pressure on the lo- local law enforcement to round up black people. Uh, under uh, an expanded misdemeanor system so that they essentially could be re-enslaved. And so sheriffs and police uh, and jails and judges uh, rounded up black people for the kinds of offenses that unfortunately we still see. um... Well, we are going to take this moment. uh, I want to get back to what Alexandra Natapoff was saying, but we need to take this moment to take our last break of the hour. We can take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. If you or someone you know needs legal assistance but don't have the ability to pay, we have some resources for you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are most of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Now, our Mississippi Bar has just a whole page of pro bono resources uh, for you to try if you can't afford legal representation. Their website is msbar.org. We're talking with Professor Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center, the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Professor Alexandra Natapoff, professor of law at Harvard Law School. We're talking about punishing misdemeanors. And Professor Natapoff, can you finish your thoughts uh, when we had a little technical difficulty? Sure. I apologize. It might have been the fault of my computer. Uh, so it's, it's just worth noting that, that the the racial imbalances of the criminal of the misdemeanor system go all the way back to uh, the end of the Civil War when the misdemeanor system was really repurposed. It was expanded and repurposed uh, to round up the black labor force and to coerce them back into working through the use of fines and fees, sadly in ways that we can still recognize today that extractive impulse. 
And we really, and I think, um, you know, unfortunately and tragically, we have become more aware as a community of the violence against black people that it, that, that the criminal system deploys against black people. But so much of this is connected to the misdemeanor system. Michael Brown in Ferguson was stopped for a misdemeanor before he was killed by police. Eric Garner in New York was stopped for a misdemeanor before he was killed by police. Philando Castile was stopped for a misdemeanor traffic violation before he was killed by police. George Floyd was stopped for a misdemeanor before he was killed by police. We cannot underestimate the risk and violence uh, that is invited by exposing so many people, and in particular so many black people, to the misdemeanor apparatus uh, as we increasingly recognize the violence that, um, that is involved in criminal enforcement. So it, it's really impossible to understate the importance and intrusion of the misdemeanor apparatus, even though we call these crimes minor. We call them petty. It's entirely misleading. Let's take our last call for the show. Let's go to Cleveland and talk with Chuck. Chuck, we're glad you've called into In Legal Terms today. What's your question or comment? Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to see if your guest could uh, kind of criticize the common conservative view that the uh, the broken windows policy that was used in New York City in the 1980s, 1990s, was responsible for reducing serious crime. And that is kind of counterpoint to their uh, suggestion that enforcing misdemeanor laws stringently uh, makes the situation worse. Thank you. So, Chuck, thanks. Um, uh, appreciate you calling in. And, and, and this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently because of uh, what we discussed earlier in the show, this narrative that's developed in certain cities in Mississippi that because we have seen an increase in gun violence, the way to get at that is through tougher enforcement of misdemeanors and, and this notion somehow that if you punish people for the little stuff, they don't get to the big stuff. I, I don't know exactly how the how – the, um, syllogism goes, um, but it doesn't work, it turns out. And as uh, Professor Natapoff and I talked about earlier in the show, um, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of studies around this, right? Like, is it, is it true? Because if it is true, then we can understand why people might do it. If it does make us safer, then why not ramp it up around the little stuff and, and, and we can avoid, you know, murders and gun violence. Turns out, though, Chuck, that all the research that I've been able to find, um, and, and including the most recent um, huge study at the University of Chicago, says that just the opposite is true. And we, just, and we discussed this before, that for all the reasons we've been talking about for the last hour, this creates instability, it creates uncertainty in people's lives, it creates economic hardship, it creates homelessness, um, it creates unemployment, and all of those things lead to increase in crime. And, and I don't know, and, and Alexander, you can tell me if I'm wrong, I don't know that there are that many people left who, who are seriously talking about this who think that stop and frisk 
was a good idea and is and is the reason that to the extent there's less crime that that happened. I may be missing it. Yeah, just to add a couple of things. Um, so when crime fell in New York, a lot of people. You're right that people did attribute it. Um, to stop and frisk and broken windows, but crime fell in lots of cities that did not use stop and frisk and did not use order maintenance crime, uh, 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 policing policies. And so, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging empirical and scientific question about why crime goes up and down. And anyone who tells you that they entirely understand why that happens is lying to you, we don't know. It's obviously complicated and political and social and economic and historical. Uh, but what we do, what we have learned, as, as Cliff just described, uh, is that broken windows policing, the theory of broken windows, uh, has never been proven to work to reduce the kinds of serious violent crime that, um, you know, that people are interested in. And un- Cliff, unfortunately, you said, you said, are people still... Uh, seriously thinking about it and I think that when when there's destabilization and fear and need people revisit all kinds of discredited theories and unfortunately I think we are seeing people say well maybe we should try it again (laughs) even after we learned uh, you know, learn that it doesn't work, and, and the science has told us that it doesn't work, that, that because people feel like their backs are up against the wall because of the pandemic, because of economic instability, because of all the things that we're going through, because of increase, some increased kinds of violence in some locales, people are desperate. And, I, and this is the moment for us to double down on what we know, on what we have learned, uh, and, and to realize that we do have more economically sound, more humane policies at our disposal. It is not a moment to revisit old discredited theories. And, you know, on a hopeful note, you know, in this, the poorest state in the country, right, and the most religious state in the country, where every week in our churches and our synagogues and our mosques, we talk about our commitment to the poor. Undeniable, right? um, There are places that have figured it out, right, that we don't have to do it this way, that we can we can be smarter. I'll give credit to places like Tupelo, Mississippi, where they'll accept a $5 a month payment plan and try really hard not to put you in jail. Starkville, Mississippi. Um, the city of Jackson has changed its practices in some significant ways on payment plans, and I want to give them credit for that. But we say that we care deeply about the poor, that we have commitments to the poor in this state, in this poorest state in the country. And I think the question is, are we who we say we are? Can we see the damage that we're doing to our neighbors and friends? And are we willing to sit by and and let that continue to happen because it's the way it's always been done? I I hope not. And I hope you're right, Alexandra, that, that this is a time where we can think about changes. I hope we will. Yeah, I hope so, too. Well, and we're so glad that you have been on this show, and this show will be a podcast for those to listen to in the future while we research and think and look at studies to see what does work. 
because uh, this is not a top five list we want to be on. Thank you so much for our guests, Professor Cliff Johnson, Director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Professor Alexandra Nadapov, Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to thank our folks here at MPB who helped put our show on the air. I've got our intern, Charles, and Jay White. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you.